Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, shalom. Good to see all of you. Can you hear me? Can you see me? I'm on a different computer and it's working. Oh, and look at them, Jeremy and Tehila. They are so cute on their little microphones. Very professional. Very, very professional. It is so good to see you guys. And here we are in a, another beautiful week in Judea, in the land of Israel. And um, while many of you are indeed physically dispersed around the world, spiritually, we are all together here in the land. And uh, so we have a lot of things to discuss and to, to, to share and to pray about on this fellowship. Really, I mean, this week was overwhelming. There were so many visitors out at the farm, groups and families and educators and Hasidic rebbies and entire yeshivas of Hasidim that swarmed the farm early in the morning when I woke up and looked out my window. That was crazy and awesome. But uh, there's just everything. And there were there was so, at the end of the day, every day I was just a rag. And I didn't have the time that I usually do to immerse myself in learning the Torah portion as I, as I usually do for the fellowship. I'm just being honest. I mean, I definitely learned. But on a quantity level, it just wasn't the same. But Hashem really blessed me that nearly everything that I did learn jumped out at me like, wow, this is something that I need to share with the fellowship. This is something I just, uh, that I have to, to, to spread, um, which really reminds me that I, I want to express to all of you my gratitude because I was really thinking about it. And since the initial conception of this fellowship by Jeremy, shout out to Jeremy, good for you. Um, my Torah learning has not only increased in quantity, but really in quality as well, and because we learn it in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, in chapter four, if you want to look it up. When you learn in order to teach, you'll be successful in both learning and in teaching. And teachers out there know exactly what I'm talking about. And I can say with much clarity that the great honor I have in taking part in the teaching of this fellowship has very much helped me and grown me in my Torah learning in the most profound ways I can't even describe. Okay, so thank you. And, uh, and I have a lot to share, but I don't want to keep our beloved Jeremy and Tehillah waiting. I don't know what kind of connection you guys have, but it does look very stable, more stable than what I have over here. But, um, but I'm just eager to hear. I'm more eager to hear, uh, you know, I don't know where you are, what you're doing, what is going on. None of us do. And so we're excited. So at no further ado, Jeremy and Tehillah, you guys are up. Uh, we miss you guys so much out here. Okay, great. Hey, everybody. Good to see everyone. I want you guys to know that if I were to turn the camera around now, there's like a whole audience. About half of the people that spent Shabbat with us are now live at the fellowship. We're in Silt, Colorado. Guys, make some noise. <laughs> and so last Shabbat, we were in Iowa, and it, to, we've just... We've gone through the mountains, we've gone through the plains, we've gone through the rivers, the cities of Chicago, and we, I mean, we've been to the Colorado Rockies before, but never this far into the mountains. And then we got here, and as I'm looking around, it's hard to, even I'm looking outside the window that's right here, everything here looks like out of a dream, out of a postcard, out of a movie. It's so beautiful here. And then as we come into the mountains, um, well, it, we, it was like a little bit late. It was like traffic coming up. They bought us kosher meat. We started making a barbecue and then out of nowhere, a torrential storm came 
And it was like, wow, how is this happening? As we're like trying to light the barbecue storms, we're holding up tables to try to block the, the rain from hitting the fire. And then lightning is striking and then rainbows appear. And then with the sunset turns into this magical color, purple and orange. And I couldn't help but feel as though the, the, the universe was lighting up. God was like, pay attention. If you think this is just another Shabbat, it's not, look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing. And it was just like wonder after sign after another, like it was just the most, and then it just stopped. And then the, it just became beautiful weather. It was just like to enter into Shabbat with such a storm of insanity. And uh, we just had the most amazing Shabbat. Um, with the most wonderful people. I don't know how we've done it, but the fellowship has somehow attracted the most beautiful souls in the world. I can't wait. We have to figure out a way of connecting more people with more people. People came from all over Colorado, three hours, four hours, and they never met each other. And it was just like something magical is happening on these Shabbats. I mean, we've never done before. And it was, um, it was incredible. And um, well, I just, I wanted to share one story that Tehila actually shared over Shabbat that really touched my heart. And I know that she's not going to talk about it, but I did want to talk about it myself on Friday morning. Uh, we woke up in the morning and I get a message from uh, our friend that's staying in our house on the farm. And he says, your dog Dreidel has been run over by a car and we don't know where he is. And Dreidel has been the bane of my existence for almost 10 years. He is the most useless dog. Um, he's not really housebroken. He's not very intelligent. He bites people sometimes. It's not really a bite because he's so literally got chihuahua. It doesn't really do anything, but he's not very friendly. Um, but he is my oldest son's like love of his life. And when we heard that he was run over by a car and we'd know where he was, um, I almost started to cry. I was like, what? A dreidel? I mean, when we first moved to the farm, dreidel was our last line of defense. All we had, we didn't have any guard dogs. We didn't have any sheep. We just had Dreidel, our chihuahua. He was our guard dog. And we've gone through so much with that dog. And it was like such a horrible way to start Friday. I was like, how am I going to tell Lavi? What is he going to say? He's going to blame us that we left Israel. And why didn't we put him in a better place? And what, oh gosh, well, it's just a terrible morning. And then about an hour and a half later, I get a message from my friend saying, oh, never mind. We found him. He's fine. He wasn't even run over by a car. And I'm like, oh, oh God, what a terrible morning. For what was that for? And then all of a sudden, I was elated, just so happy to be alive. And nothing had changed. Nothing, my life was the same life that it was beforehand. Nothing moved, nothing changed. And just the paradigm shift of what could be and what should be. And just realizing that everything that we have is exactly the way it should be. And we should be so grateful for everything that we have. And then as I really felt the love that I had for this little dog that's really been the bane of my existence, it really helped me understand an insight into Balak, the Torah portion that we learned over Shabbat that I never understood before because the verses that always bothered me were, you know, God comes to Balak and says, well, if men come to summon you, arise and go with them. But only the thing that I shall speak to you, you shall do. Balaam arose in the morning and sat on his she-donkey and went with the officers of Moab. God's wrath flared because he was going. And I'm like, well, well, what does God want here from Balaam? I mean, for years I was reading that and I just never understood. God said, if people come and summon you, go with them. People came, summoned him and he went. And then how is God upset with him? Something else must be going on. And so it really um, struck me that as the donkey pushes him into the corner, Balaam out of just absolute rage, as if I just had a sword in my hand, I would just slay you, my donkey. And the donkey's like, but I've been such a loyal donkey for you for so many years. How could you strike me like that? And I was like, well, what we see here is that Balaam's inside was just really rotten. God wasn't um, upset with 
his lack of obedience. He was following the letter of the law and doing exactly what he was instructed to do. But God judges the hearts, not just the actions. And it seems like his actions were totally aligned. Theoretically, he never really did anything against God's will. But um, God's ultimate will is that we have a pure heart, that we have a joyful heart, that we have a place of um, a foundation of love and compassion. And here we see that, you know, his donkey kind of pushing him into a side, the rage and anger that erupted just shows the mental state that he was at. And what I have decided, or what not decided, just discovered is that there is a common thread between all of the people of the fellowship, whether they're getting married and engaged in Norway, or they're here in the mountains of Colorado, their insides are so pure, their insides are so good. And their outsides may take different forms and different shapes. And some people have this level of observance and some people have this way of living and this way of following their heart, but their hearts are so good. And I think that on the inside, that's really what binds us all together. All these people that are seeking after Hashem with pure hearts, with love and compassion is our foundation. And it has just been um, a pleasure, an honor. It has been amazing. Finally, having a chance to spend Shabbat real time, learning their families, learning their stories, and um, it's just like the flame of the fellowship is growing and growing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and thank you. We're just so thankful for our gracious hosts here in Silt, Colorado, and get to talk to them, a couple of them, in a few uh, in a few minutes. But um, you know, Ari, you'll appreciate this. I was very lucky this week that uh, you know we found ourselves in at the. Waller base in Patterson, Missouri. And I wake up in a cold sweat at about three in the morning and I get this bad feeling like there's something Jeremy is not telling me. And I Google distance between Patterson, Missouri and Silt, Colorado. <laughs> this is Wednesday morning, mind you. And it says 18 hours. <laughs> I said, Jeremy, we have to drive 18 hours in three days. He's like, yeah, no big deal. I'm like, thank goodness he pulls the wool over my eyes regularly to take me on these escapades. Because if I would have known, I would have said, we can't do that. But Baruch Hashem, Jeremy did the entire drive on his own. And our children were only slightly worse for the wear. And, and we were lucky enough to get all the way out here to Silt just in time to barely get our food in the oven for Shabbat and launch into the most incredible and memorable Shabbat. Um, I was even luckier that on Shabbat afternoon, uh, <clears throat> Jeremy was uh, Jeremy was wiped out, so he went to take a nap, and uh, uh, apparently, not realizing it, I went on a, about a how how long was it, guys? About a three hour ramble, three hour Torah ramble, and so, <laughs> and so uh, you know, we talked about a lot of things, but there's just one idea that came up that I want to share with the whole fellowship because it came up in our discussion together. Somebody in the group asked me, well. You know, because now we're sort of in the junction between Balak and uh, the portion of Balak and the portion of Pinchas. In you know, in America, we read Balak, in Israel, we read Pinchas. So we're sort of at the junction where this story takes place of Pinchas's zealousness. And so somebody said, "Well, do we need more of the spirit of Pinchas? Like, is this a good thing? What what is that about? Because it seems kind of out of the ordinary." And so it just got me thinking a little bit about this showdown between. Pinchas and Zimri, because Pinchas and Zimri are obviously individual people, but they're also ideas, because Pinchas is the son of the, you know, high priest. He's like the, the, the grandson of Aaron. He is the, you know, 
idea of the tribe of Levi. And Zimri is the prince of the tribe of Shimon. So he is like representing the idea of the tribe of Shimon and what a clash they're having. But it's not the first time we meet this pair, right? There's something going on here that's like a multi-generational development. And what is that about? So got me thinking back, like what is the first time we meet Shimon and Levi? The first time we meet Shimon and Levi is of course, when they slaughter Shechem, the city of Shechem, and Yaakov is not pleased with them. And what is going on there? There are these, you know, two brothers that they're acting together. What is driving them? And so the Torah is a little bit ambiguous on what's driving them. Because in the beginning, they say, you know, they sound, they sound really like moral. They say, they were fired deeply with indignation for he had committed an outrage in Israel. You know, this was such a thing must not be done. It was like a moral indignation at what happened to Dina. But in the end, when Yaakov gets upset with them, they say, well, he's going to turn our sister into a harlot. There's something there that sounds more like Mafia. gang wars. Yeah, like it's not, I'm going to do it in like some sort of Bronx accent, you know? Like there's something going on here that seems a little bit like prideful. Like we're just like going out and vengeful, prideful. It's not really about maintaining the moral status of the you know, people of the land, but really something that's like a little bit like tribal you know, bullying. And well, well, what is it then? What is it? Like what is driving them? And it's complicated because whenever we do things, what is driving us? Are we, are we being nice to somebody because we care about them? Are we being nice because it makes us feel good to be nice when we're doing something bad? Is it because of, you know, when we're, when we're aggressive, is it because we're fighting for Hashem or is it because we're just aggressive people? How do you know we're so complicated? And so that's the first time that Shimon and Levi appear together, but it's not the only time they appear together because they appear together again in the final portion in Genesis, in Vayechi, where Yaakov is blessing all of his sons. He gives each of his sons an individual blessing, but just two of them, Shimon and Levi, get a blessing together. And what is their blessing? Is it really even a blessing? It's kind of a blessing-ish, curse-ish, where he says, I am going to divide you from one another because your wrath is so powerful. I'm going to divide you from one another, and I'm going to disperse you in Israel. Now, is being divided and dispersed, is that, is that good or bad? Well, it depends how you look at it. And then the third time we meet them together is here in this story. And now look what happens in this story. In this story, well, are Shimon and Levi driven by really caring about the moral level of the nation? Or are they just kind of wrathful, violent people? Well, Pinchas kind of proves where he's coming from. Pinchas uses his wrath, even against his own nation, even against his own people, but to maintain the moral status of Israel. Shimon, who had claimed to be really concerned about the moral status in the Shechem story, the, you know, representative of the idea of Shimon doesn't seem, when the girls of Moab come about, it doesn't seem like he is the, uh, you know, person to be giving moral judgments. And so they, they sort of bring cl clarity to that question of what was driving them. And then look how their blessings come to pass as blessings or curses. Look what happens to Shimon. You never meet anybody from Shimon after this story because Shimon eventually just dissolves kind of into the tribe of Judah and they disappear. But Levi, the same words of Yaakov, the same words come to pass with him in that he's dispersed in the most positive way. He's spread throughout Israel into cities where he can teach his zealousness. 
and be an inspiration to the nation and give that moral compass in each tribe a little taste of Levi. So that blessing actually becomes a blessing for Levi and a curse for Shimon in a perfect harmony with what's really driving them on the inside. And it teaches us something so deep that our sages conveyed to us that our future actions can actually have the power to even change our past. Because there's this strange saying in the Talmud that when a person repents, their former, their sins from their past become zchuyot, become merits. You say, well, wouldn't it be more normal to say, when you know, when you sin Hashem, when you when you repent, Hashem forgets about your sins. That would be like, okay, that makes sense. You know, you repented, let's let's erase all those sins. It says, no, Hashem remembers your sins and turns them into merits. What does that mean? That your future actions, your future decisions are able to reinterpret for yourself and even in Hashem's eyes reinterpret your past and then curses that might have come onto you as a punishment for those sins can actually turn into blessings, just like Yaakov's words turned into blessings for Levi, but they turned into punishments for Shimon. And so I think this, you know, showdown between these two people give us kind of a taste that we can take into our own lives. Everyone looks back and has, you know, regrets and, oh, if only I could have done that. And if only I should have done that. But the Torah portion is teaching us that it's never too late because through our future actions, we can re not only change our future, but redeem the meaning of our past. So that was something that came up for us on Shabbat that I thought was memorable. And I just wanted to share it with the rest of the crew. Yeah, I just wanted to think, by the way, that was absolutely amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. You're wonderful. Um, I just wanted to invite um, a couple of people here that are in the audience uh, to just share a little bit about Shabbat to kind of give people in the fellowship um, a taste of the other side here. It's like there's like a professional studio, but there's a whole community of believers that are here in Colorado that have come together and that we had an opportunity to come from the mountains of Judea to the mountains of Colorado to celebrate such a unique Shabbat, like once in a lifetime, once in a, in a century, who knows, but um, it was definitely a first time for me. And maybe Caleb, do you want to start? Cindy, do you want to come? Can I, take, well, I guess, can I just show everyone the, the yeah. crew that's here? So, so Cindy, why don't you come up here? And then here, let, let Caleb do it that you don't break anything to Hila. <laughs> yeah, here comes it here. Say hi, everybody. <laughs> All right. All right, here, Tila, come. Hi, so um, my name is Cindy Apps, and uh, my husband and I and our two sons live here in just outside of Silt uh, in, in a little town called Rifle. Wait, one second. Cindy was the mastermind of this Shabbat, <laughs> it should be said, that she organized so many things for us. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's, um, I'm glad that she did not realize how far away they were so they would actually make the trip. Um, it was uh, a couple of times my husband and I, we actually stopped and we said, gosh, is he actually not behind a screen? Like he's actually in the room with us. Like it was just such a gift. Um, I, I, Jeremy asked me just a minute ago to, to talk and I was thinking, gosh, well, what did I want to say? And I think the thing that um, I wanted to convey was um, there's been two words that have come up for me in various different ways that Hashem is just bringing over and over, and they are alignment and they are connection. So alignment and connection. We have desired for so many years now to align ourselves to 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have a desire to align ourselves to Echad, to oneness, to unity. Um, we've, desi we've desired to align ourselves to the Jewish people. And, you know, we don't have anybody to teach us right here in the ways that we really wish that we could. And this fellowship has been such a gift um, for that. Jeremy and Ari and Tahila um, has just been, they have come forth and wanted to teach us. And to be able to stand there on Shabbat and be able to do our prayers on whatever level we are on, with whatever knowledge we have, and to have Jeremy and Tahila there and to teach us. And they let us do what we normally do without judgment, but they came in with the wisdom of the Torah and from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they said, let me show you and let me teach you. And what an honor and what a gift. And I hope that you all can experience this too. I know there's something going on in Texas for Shabbat and I hope you guys can all make it. Um, but these people and their heart to teach us has just shown us that it's okay to be who we are, where we are. We don't have to try to be anybody different as long as our hearts are to align with, with God, with Hashem. He's going to send all the people that we need. And so I say that as an encouragement to everybody, because I know there's a lot of you that are alone out there. And you're not alone here. And these guys just brought it to a whole new level of real. So thank you for doing that. And um, um, just one last thing I remember from what Jeremy was saying when he was talking, when we were going through the prayers, is he was talking, he started with the Modeani. I mean, you know, I've been familiar with that for a long time, but I think the thing he said what, that impacted me the most was, you know, our natural state is alignment with gratitude, alignment with gratitude. And when we say the Modeani and we align ourselves with gratitude, then our natural um, desire next is to be indebted and to be in service to Hashem. And I just, um, I was just thinking about how much I want to take that embodiment of alignment and gratitude um, to a whole new level. And um, so thank you, Jeremy. And thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was really beautiful. Kid, do you want to say some words? All right, there we are. So we have kind of like a spokesman of the fellowship. Here we oh, are. No. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm super stoked. Um, when Jeremy was, <laughs> it was, it's so funny. When you show up, it's like, there's just like this inspiration that hits me. It's like, it, it, I feel like my number one fan slash cheerleader from Israel has just showed up here in Colorado. And like, how many of us need like a, like a coach that's just like ecstatic about what we're doing. And I think Jeremy truly embodies what I believe the nation of Israel will become as they, as they, I would say evolve, but as they grow into the destiny that Hashem has for them. And that is that the nation of Israel is going to say, wait a second, we're supposed to be those coaches to the world that are going to just say, guys, listen, you're doing great. And so when I landed out here in Silk, Colorado and bought the resort, Jeremy was like, Caleb, 
there's a lighthouse. There's a, there's a, you know, I've got an Israeli flag out here. And I feel like that little pole that goes up is like my antenna that's connecting me to Jerusalem. And so that's, that's like my, my daily pulse. When I look out my door and I see our Israeli flag, it's like, guys, we are anchored here in Silk, Colorado, but connected to the life stream that's coming from the land of Israel on a weekly basis through the land of Israel fellowship. And I know a lot of you guys feel that way. And uh, I'm super, super, super stoked. Like, so what's happened over the weekend? It's been a whirlwind, to be honest with you. It's been like, it's just, there's so much to process right now. I, I have to say, it's just been, you know, Israel has been very near and dear to Ken and I's hearts for a long time. And it was the center of everything we did for 14 years. And to, to step back here into Silk, Colorado, and then just say, okay, what are we doing here? Like how, what, what's happening? And we, and as Jeremy and Tila had been here, Ken and I were just, you know, laying in bed talking last night and we're just like, is is the connection like being reestablished? Is something happening? And so I, I, I want to tell you guys on the fellowship here. I mean, my, we're already setting a date for next year for all of you guys to put on your calendars because we're going to bring in the whole crew, not just Jeremy and Tila. We're going to bring in, you know, Ari and his family, hopefully. And we're going to do a Shabbat like no other right here on the resort. And so I told Jeremy, because Jeremy called me last month and he was like, hey, we're coming to Colorado. Let's get it done. I'm like, do you realize my resort books like six months to a year in advance? Like we, we, we need to nail down a day. So if you guys are interested, we'd love to have you come to Western Slope of Colorado, be hosted by our wonderful fellowship and friends that are here uh, and just experience a Shabbat like no other. Cause you know, unfortunately not all of us are able to make it to Israel often, but uh, maybe we can bring these guys here to us. And that's what we've experienced uh, this weekend. And it's been super, super, super blessed. And so in saying all of that, Yishar Koak. Go in strength, my brother. Thank you. Thank Shalom. you. All right, Ari. So we'll pass it back to you now. Thank you so much. We miss you guys and um, bringing the light of Judea to Colorado. It's pretty amazing. Wow, wow, wow. I, I could spend the rest of the fellowship really just talking about what I just heard from Tehila and Jeremy and Cindy and Caleb. I really am jealous, really. I haven't, um, I feel like I haven't seen Caleb forever. Is there a chance that, uh, Caleb, if you can hear me, I don't know if you guys can still hear me, if you're going to watch the fellowship, you are not dismissed. I want to see Ari Chesed. If you can bring Ari Chesed up, I would love to see him. Is that him? I hear squeaking in the background. Anyways, uh, I have a lot to say, but we have a, a lot to talk about in this fellowship too. And yes, it's true about Dreidel. I got the call to, oh, this is Ari Chesed. Hello, Ari. Wow. I think we have the Ari, Ari soul connection. That is so cute and so delicious. Does he want to say a word? Does he have anything to say? All right, maybe when uh, the camera, you guys having an earthquake out there in silt? I don't know what's going on. Anyways, um, it's true about Dreidel. I got the call uh, about Dreidel. The Dreidel was hit by a car and, and I was so sad. Do you know how long I've been trying to run over Dreidel? For years. And then this other person that probably wasn't even trying to was able to run him over. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, sort of. Um, but I do believe that the way to not run over a dog is to try to run over the dog. That is something I really do believe. But Dreidel is just fine. He just peed on my couch. Uh, so everything is well as it's supposed to be. Anyways, um, now Jeremy quoted Balak, but don't get nervous. All right. Uh, we are studying Pinchas. We're in this period of time where those in the diaspora are reading the previous week's Torah portion. But not us, not the Land of Israel Fellowship, because we are in the Land of Israel in this fellowship, even if our bodies may be in the exile. But I guess Jeremy and Tehillah have been there so long that they're actually reading Balak. But I guess as they say, uh, when in Rome, all right, or when in Silt, 
anyways, I really am jealous. It's so good to see all of you guys. And Tehillah, that was so beautiful. It's really true. What a beautiful teaching to share with the fellowship because there are so many people in this fellowship that are elevating and rectifying not only the actions of their own lives and using the their their shortcomings and their sins as a platform to come closer to Hashem than even imaginable, but also intergenerationally that's possible. Of course, I'm thinking about those Germans that came here and said, this is the, the tip of the Judean frontier. This is where the world is the most against you. Well, this is where we want to stand with you. And our parents brought so much curse and darkness, we want to bring blessing and light. Talk about intergenerational fixing. But uh, but yeah, so let's let's dive in. Dive in into the word, right? As many of you call it. You know, Jews don't really tend to call the Torah the word. Um, not that there's anything wrong with it at all. I actually really like it. It's just not the way we roll. I guess it just never caught on. I just remember a conversation that I was having with a Christian friend about Shalom Bait, about peace in the home. I don't remember which friend it was, but I think it was one of the Waller brothers. Pretty sure it was Caleb. And he said, it was important in marriage. It's important in marriage to bathe your wife in the word. And uh, while, yes, it really is important, I also just love saying that. I just tell Shane, I have to bathe you in the word. And, uh, and I bless all of us. I want to bless all of us that our homes should be filled with joyous immersion in the word of Hashem and that our homes should just be bathed in the word. Amen. Anyways, um, with your permission, I want to start by going back a few Torah portions just for a moment to the Torah portion of Chukat, because, uh, you know, we spent a good amount of time reflecting on the greatest of mysteries of the, 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 uh, the red heifer, right? And why the Kohen, that the priest that administers the ashes of the calf to purify others is himself rendered impure. Um, and, and while, you know, when we study Torah, it's very important to have the humility to say that ultimately we just don't know, right? It doesn't mean that we can't seek understanding and we can't seek meaning within it. Of course we can, and we should. So one of the suggestions that I shared was regarding the conservation of matter, that until the final redemption, there would have to be some impurity in the world. But I recently came by this beautiful teaching and I don't know its source. I couldn't find it. But if I had to guess, it would be from the uh, teachings of Rav Shlomo Karlbach because it just sounds so much like him. But as I said, I don't know the source. But the teaching is that when you love someone, you're willing to lower your status in order to elevate the other status, right? You're willing to lower your status in hopes of, of raising them up. And, uh, and this is the reason that the Jewish law, that it dictates that the Kohen becomes impure when he purifies others with the ashes of the red heifer. The Kohen is teaching, I love you so much, that I'm willing to become impure if it means that I can help you become pure. And I just love that teaching, and I wanted to share it with you, even though it's the wrong week altogether, so forgive me. But in just in this world of such fierce competition and often you know, envy and, and jealousy, so much of the liberal left is all about that. You can't have, and you can't this. The laws of the red heifer are teaching us to love other people and encourage their success. And I just want to share this with you because the deeper... I get into the Torah, and I'm, I'm just scratching the surface still, but the deeper I do get in, the more I see that love is at the root of everything, really, really, absolutely everything. So that was beautiful, and I wanted to share it with you because a lot of times, you know, it's part of our relationships. We fall into this trap of seeing others and thinking, like, what's in it for me? You know, not just materially, but often emotionally and, and spiritually, and while it's important to go out of our way to surround ourselves by people that will raise us up, we also need to remember 
that part of our mission in this world is to be razors, razor uppers, not razors like that we shave with, to, to raise the sparks and to shine the lights to those around us. So even if we may take a hit in doing so, that's the main mission, if you ask me. We surround ourselves by sources of light and inspiration only so that we're able to absorb that light and share it with others, not to keep it to ourselves. That's why in our Amidah, right, our redemptive meditative prayer, we call Hashem, we say, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzhak, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then we end that verse, that prayer with, with the uh, blessed are you, O Lord our God, the shield of Abraham. Only the shield of Abraham. Because out of all of our forefathers, he was the one that went to the greatest lengths to call out in the name of Hashem in a world of paganism and idolatry. And he didn't care if it may bring him down. It was a price he was willing to pay to share Hashem with the world. Okay, so there's that. And I wanted to share that with you because it just it touched me deeply. And, and it was one of those tours that just made me wonder, like, why I didn't see that from the very beginning? Now, before pushing forward into the beauty of Parshat Pinchas, I want to go back to last week's portion of Balak. And I hope I'm not making a mistake by going way too far into this, but I just sort of had to because also I was, uh, I got an email, a message from Laura Blair, who is one of our beloved fellowship members. And she sent me a message regarding the fellowship and she asked me why I didn't use numbers 2222, right? In Bamidbar, 2222 to illustrate the word Satan to the fellowship, Satan, right? Which I was really happy that she did because I clearly remember last week on Shabbat. Uh, you know, afterwards, I felt like there was an important point, a great teaching opportunity that I left out that I really wanted to say, but I, I couldn't put my finger on it. And this happens a lot to me, uh, particularly when I'm learning on Shabbat and I can't make any notes or write anything down. And I remember wanting to make that exact point and forgetting to do so. And so this is regarding our ongoing discussion regarding the nature of the Satan, right? Or as they say, Satan in America, they call it Satan. And by the way, if you're done with this subject, message me, say we could put that behind us. But for some reason, my heart keeps going back to it. So over the last number of fellowships, we've been you know, exploring the subject. And I feel it's not just an issue, but it touches on what I believe to be a very deep truth, right? A misunderstanding, which can cause a significant distortion in our understanding of the nature in Hashem and can have profound consequences, not only in our relationship with God, but in the way we serve him as well. And keep in mind, this is all from my heart and my understanding. Everything I said, everything, I could be wrong in everything that I said. I'm just sharing my heart. Okay, so here's the verse from the last week's Torah portion when Bilam was on his way to curse the nation. And he was so excited about it. He woke up early. He saddled his donkey. We remember the whole thing. And it goes like this. Right? God's wrath flared because he was going. And an angel of Hashem stood on the road to impede him, right? To stop him. He was riding on a she donkey and his two young men were with him. So here in this verse that Laura brought to my attention, we find the actual word Satan, which is actually used here as a verb, right? Meaning that, as I said last week, the Satan is as a position or, or, or a function, like the prosecuting attorney for the state. But whereas in Western law, right, law enforcement can't really, you know, set people up. They can't entrap them. The Satan in Torah understanding is the name of an angel who does entrap, who lures, who seduces towards sin. As we saw, for example, the first time with the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right, with Chava, with Eve. But that same seducing angel is also the prosecutor 
who then throws the book at the person that just gave in to the very sin which he himself seduced them to do. So this angel is called the Satan due to the description of his mission. And in, in no way is the Satan a rebellious angel or a rogue angel or anything like that, right? A rebellious or rogue angel that's locked in some sort of battle with the creator. And is a, is, it's a foreign dualistic idea that contradicts the deepest truth of Ein Od Milvado, that there's nothing other than Hashem. The Satan is an angel that is sent to do exactly what Bilam's donkey was doing in that verse, to, to provide resistance, right, to impede him. And again, these points are so important because if the fundamental, you know, and seemingly nuanced flaws are taken to their logical conclusions, it can lead to the greatest errors and the most profound sins. Which brings us to this week's Torah portion. So Bilam, we remember the great non-Jewish prophet kept trying to curse the nation of Israel and each attempt led him to an even more beautiful blessing, right? King Balak was getting increasingly furious and Bilam was all sad and downcast and they parted ways. But our sages tell us what we can really intuitively tell from the text itself. I at least think you can, that, that there's a direct link between those two verses from verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 25, where they part ways, where uh, to the very next verse, chapter 25, verse one, Israel settled in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the feasts of their gods. The people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods. Israel became attached to Baal Peor, and the wrath of Hashem flared up against Israel. Right, so Bilam was trying to curse Israel, and he kept failing. And then he realized that if seeing the modesty of the camp, and their loyalty, and their fidelity to Hashem, was the source of their blessing, then immodesty and licentiousness and idolatry would be the source of their curse, right? The cause of their undoing. And so he advised Balak to send the daughters of Midian and Moab to seduce the men into idolatry and licentiousness, which just shows how like they were repulsed by the Israelites, but at the same time, the fathers were more than willing to send their daughters to do such a thing. They were so terrified. And so Balak immediately did that. And the sages say that what happened is that the women invited the men to their feasts and they seduced them there. But before they actually allowed the, the actual act of seduction to happen, they would pull out their Baal Peors, this horribly repulsive idol, and, uh, and demand or persuade or seduce the men to worship it. And the way that that idol was worshipped is that the worshiper defecated themselves in front of it, relieved themselves in front of it. That was the actual service of the idol. And what was the ideology, the thinking behind this idol of Peor? Because every idol had its own thinking, its own belief system attached to it. Well, it was sort of reminiscent to some degree of Korah's mistake of pantheism. I'm just sort of speeding through this because we discussed this in length in the past fellowships. And what is pantheism? The belief that everything is divine and equally holy, right? And you take that to the logical extreme that even feces, which is the definition of the unholy, right? What is feces if not the refuse byproduct of food after all the nutrients and life-giving energy has been removed from it, the empty shell of it? Even that is divine and holy and worthy of being worshipped and worshipping with. And that was their offering to this disgusting idol. Now, if you remember, I told you about that Facebook post from that woman that really disturbed me so much, 
that I responded to and everyone tackled me and said how horrible I am. I tried to be really nice about it. Anyways, this woman, she seemed to be very spiritual and throw the word Hashem around all the time. But then she said how much she and her daughter loved drag queen story hour at the library where children, right? Children are subjected to this perversion intentionally. Remember what I'm talking about. You, you remember this. Well, I saw another post where she shares part of her painful journey. And she's clearly not a bad person, okay, a at all. On the contrary, she seems to have a gentle uh, soul, like a, a pained, injured, gentle soul. Uh, uh, but here is the end of her post. She writes, Hashem, renew the spirit, renew the right spirit in me. Once again, drown me in the passion for tikkun olam. Let me be a peacemaker and repairer of the world. Allow me to redeem my time to the purpose of the highest love in service of every part of this beautiful creation. The divine is in all. All is divine. So you can tell she's not a bad person. Okay, she's trying her best. Now, just I, I want to start at the beginning there because to a Torah Jew, to a lot of Jews, and to I'm sure many of you, the le liberal left has been hijacking the words tikkun olam, which means repairing the world for decades now and twisting those words to mean the exact opposite of what they were intended to mean. If you read the entire verse without taking it out of context and flippantly just cutting the rest of the verse out. And so I could give you a long and very sad list of organizations who advocate the most repulsive anti-Bible, anti-Torah, anti-God things like transgender surgery for children or abortion on demand up to nine months or uprooting Jews from Judea. And all of them, they make it sound like it's from the Torah because they call it tikkun olam, that that's what's driving them. Not only in their futile attempt at making the Torah more appealing to their friends on the secular left, but twisting and distorting its very essence, right? But also in hopes of making themselves feel better about their own Jewish heritage and their own Jewish identity by making it seem like the Torah's values are identical to the leftist garbage that it seems they really truly believe in. Which, by the way, is what the sages say was the intention of Zimri, right? The, the Israelite prince who sinned so publicly with this Moabite woman that, uh, you know, they say that, what was his intention? They say that his tribe, who he loved so much, was failing to this horrible seduction and sin. So rather than stand up to them, and rebuke them, he jumped in himself to legitimize the sin and defend his people in hopes of making the argument that this repulsive behavior wasn't wrong at all. Right? Does that make sense? If you guys are with me, I heard Tabitha just go in. I'm getting paranoid. You can't hear me. Raise your hands. Can you raise your hands? Okay, so we're together. Thank you. So, so as a matter of fact, Zimri was saying, this is Judaism, right? But what in truth is the entirety of the tikkun olam verse from our prayers? So here's the last paragraph of Aleinu, where these words are most famously articulated. And with your permission, I was going to just read the verse, but I really want to read the whole thing, because the entire second paragraph, at least, of this prayer, because, you know, my friend Zeph Orenstein of the City of David always says that this paragraph is the cliff notes for the entire mission of the Jewish people in the world. So here's the prayer. We therefore, we therefore put our hope in you, Adonai our God, to soon behold the glory of your might in banishing idolatry from the earth. And the false gods will be utterly exterminated 
to perfect the world as the kingdom of Shakai. And all mankind will invoke your name to turn back to you, all the wicked of the earth. They will realize and know, all the inhabitants of the world, that to you every knee must bend, every tongue must swear allegiance. Before you, Adonai, our God, they will bow and prostrate themselves and to the glory of your name give honor. And they will all accept upon themselves the yoke of your kingdom. And you will reign over them soon, forever and ever, for the kingdom is yours and to all eternity you will reign in glory as it is written in your Torah. Adonai will reign forever and ever. And it is said, and Adonai will be king over the whole earth on that day. Adonai will be one and his name will be one. And there we find the words, right? To fix the world as the kingdom of Shakai. We, we try not to say the actual name, even though in context I really can, but I'm still nervous about it. But anyways, as the kingdom of Shakai, the kingdom of Hashem, we fix the world by bringing Hashem into it, by following in his word and in his ways, not by doing whatever fickle stupidity is the mood of the day that one may want to believe is fixing the world, but in reality is destroying it and doing those things and calling it fixing the world. I'm sorry you're getting a little bit of like an angry side of Ari. I'm trying to work it through. Anyways, that's just a personal pet peeve that I know deeply bothers a lot of God-fearing people who are upset by the hijacking of Torah ideas to achieve the most non-Torah ends. But then she goes on to say the words that made me want to actually quote her to begin with in this fellowship. She says, the divine is in all, all is divine. Just because it's true, right, that Hashem is in everything does not mean what she is clearly saying here, right? That everything is equally divine. Everything is equally Hashem. Everything is equally holy. That leads to Korach's thinking, and that leads to pantheism, and that leads to the Baal Peor. And again, I want to stress here that, uh, you know, what I, I don't want to seem like I'm bullying on this woman uh, by reading her post. She's really not a bad person. I'm positive about it. Hashem should heal her and bless her and only give her only good. I really do believe she's well-intentioned. But you know what they say about intentions, right? Good intentions. Uh, which brings me to the verse of our Torah portion, to the first verse. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Pinchas, son of Elazar, son of Aaron, the Co Aaron the Kohen, turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged me among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel in my vengeance. Now we know that, you know, even then, we're the people of the book, we're a nation under the law, which is something we're proud of and not ashamed of. And one could not just unilaterally take the law into their own hands and kill, no matter how, ju how justified it may be. But there is an allowance, and I can't go into all the halachic Jewish law details of it, it would just take so long, but there's an allowance in Jewish law for an act of zealotry in such a situation that they found themselves in, um, where Hashem's name is being so publicly desecrated in such a way. But for whatever reason, the only person with the presence of mind to carry out this act of zealotry, which clearly was divinely condoned and sanctioned, which we can tell was the case from the fact that the slaying not only stopped the plague that was ravaging the camp, but Pinchas was awarded with priesthood for himself and, uh, and for all of his future descendants. So, you know, being that the, the legitimacy of the act of zealotry is really dependent on the motivations of the zealot, that, that's the nature of zealotry, Pinchas' lineage was called into question as being hypocritical, being that Aaron married the daughter of Yitro, 
right, of Jethro, just like Moshe did, who at one point, Jethro was an idolatrous priest. And so they mocked him accusatorily, accusingly, saying, have you seen the son of the fattener whose mother's father fattened calves for idolatrous sacrifices? Now he goes and kills a prince of Israel, meaning that they were saying that his action may have been disguised as an heir of, of, of true zealotry, but really he had his own blemished character and faulty reasons for committing the act. And that's why the first verse Hashem traces him back to his grandfather, Aaron, who loved peace and pursued peace to show that this action was from a place of love and from a, from a, a, a sincere and authentic desire to restore life, right? To restore peace to the Israelite camp that at that very moment was being devastated and ravaged by this horrible, deadly plague. And that's what zealousness is, right? Zealousness, it's sort of like when you got to just do what you got to do. It's, it's an action that, um, that I don't think I'm spiritually evolved enough to have the confidence of making, at least not right now. When you, it's, it's when you're not concerned about consequences, about your own safety, about any outcomes other than acting in defense of Hashem's name. You know, I remember as like a, as a teen, very early on when I was studying Chumash for the first time, the Bible for the first time, my rabbi taught us this. And he said immediately, immediately afterwards, we do not do this. We never do this. Do not take this as something you should do. It was like such a liability disclaimer, he was saying. And because there's this fear that people would start doing that. And, uh, and I think this is actually why Jewish law teaches that the law of the zealot is such that it falls under the category of halacha ve'en morinket, a law which, uh, with which there are no, there's no directions to fulfilling this mitzvah. There's no instructions, meaning that if the potential, potential zealot comes to the court to inquire if he's permitted to kill the sinner in this way, 100% of the time he's refused. The answer will always be no, because the very fact that he has the presence of mind to ask means that he's not a zealot. He has other considerations in mind. Again, it's not an easy call, and it took one of the greatest Levite leaders in history to make it. And I believe that, you know, we spoke last year about why I believe that he received the covenant of peace for an act that at face value is the opposite of peace, right? Because peace is not just about hugs and, and forgiveness and fluffy feelings, but it's also about hating and destroying evil when necessary. Now, there's a, there's a lot more to say here about Pinchas, a lot more. But there's so much more for us to discuss in this portion. For example, the issue with the daughters of Tzlafchad. Have you guys read up? You know what I'm referring to, the daughters of Tzlafchad? We're only going to have an opportunity just to touch upon this. But to, here's the way they are introduced. Numbers chapter 27, verse 1. Then came the daughters of Tzlafchad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Menasheh of the families of Menashe, the son of Joseph. And these are the names of his daughters, Machla, Noah, Cholga, and Milka, and Tirzah. So these five women had no brothers, and they came to Moshe to make the argument that they should inherit their father's land. Right? And uh, so I got a lot to say about this. Forgive me if it's out of order. But the first point I want to make here is just something that struck me when I was reading it, and it's about the nature of the law. Why, who, what, what's this reminiscent of? For me, it was rem reminiscent of the story of the Israelites that approached Moshe and told him that for reasons out of their control, they were ritually impure 
during the Passover offering, and it didn't seem fair for them to miss it. They didn't think it was right, and they didn't think it was just, and they loved Hashem so much, and they wanted to offer him the Paschal sacrifice, so what are they to do? And they went to Moshe, and Moshe goes before Hashem and brings their petition directly before Hashem, because Moshe does not know the answer, and Hashem answers that they are right. And Hashem institutes Pesach Sheni, right, that they can celebrate one month later when they would be pure. Now, the sages teach us that that allowance, it could have simply been included in the Torah. But it was brought about as part of a dialogue between the nation and God, which in my mind makes it even more beautiful. That the yearning on behalf of these Israelites to come close, which is what korban means, right? Sacrifice, karov, to come close. Their yearning was so great that their petition actually went before Hashem itself and it changed the nature of the world and made its way into the Torah. That's a, that's a huge deal. You know, it's one of the elements I find most meaningful about the Torah and our relationship with Hashem. And it's not like, you know, Hashem is up there and we're down here receiving his dictates and his commands. That'd be reasonable in my mind, by the way, it would be reasonable, but such is his love for us that he wants us to be a part of it. This gets into a whole nother discussion I'm realizing as, as I'm saying about the, the oral Torah. And I don't want to start getting into that and getting into debates and stuff like that. So just forgive me here. But bottom line is he wants us to be a part. We can talk, find that throughout the Torah, just in the text itself. The Torah could have said, if a man has no sons, then his daughters can inherit his land and, and his Torah and his can inherit his land portion. But that it came from this deep desire in the hearts of these holy women who loved the land and who yearned for the land, particularly during times in which the spies just, you know, they despised the land and they spoke ill of it. Well, it just makes it more heartrending and more touching and more beautiful that this mitzvah in the Torah was inspired and brought about by the contribution of, of Basar Vadam, of flesh and blood of these holy women. This is another one of those fundamental prisms of understanding of our relationship with Hashem, that in my belief and in Torah truth, he invites us to be contributing active participants in his, in his Torah, in his desire, in his will. We have a, re a real relationship with him. We can see this very much in the, in the nature of prayer, in the very existence of prayer, that clearly we believe that our words, right, our hearts, our deepest yearnings and desires, our prayers, our supplications before Hashem can change things, right? A, a beautiful demonstration of this comes to mind from Parshat Korach. Right after the earth opened up and swallowed Korach and others were consumed in fire, the nation complained again and said, unbelievably, you killed the people of Hashem to Moshe and Aaron. And here's what Moshe, Hashem said to Moshe and Aaron. Here's what he said. Remove yourselves from among this assembly and I shall destroy them in an instant. I think I heard this from Rabbi Foreman. I don't remember. Now, the English translation says of Numbers uh, chapter 17, verse 10, it says, remove yourselves. But the actual Hebrew uses the word heromu, right? Rise up, meaning that Hashem is saying to them, arise, get up and leave, and I will destroy the nation. And what do they do? Vayiplu al pnehem. The rest of that verse, they fell on their faces, meaning they did the exact opposite of the command Hashem gave them. And therefore, right, the then, in the if-then scenario Hashem laid out before them was averted. And as we know, that was Hashem's will. Hashem wants to be engaged by us. He wants to be petitioned by us. In some ways, Hashem wants to be challenged by us. 
Now, we got to be careful about this. It has to be coming from the deepest, holiest place. But think about Abraham, right? Negotiating with Hashem to save stone. Sodom, for example, remember that? 50, 40, 30, 20, 25, 10. He's just negotiating and negotiating. And we see that Hashem actually really appreciated that. And that's really the beauty of, of prayer. Our sages actually teach something that is actually rather intuitive, but at the same time, really hard to believe. Why did Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel all struggle in conceiving? Because we're taught Hashem is mit'aveh. Hashem is yearning for the prayers of the righteous. The struggle itself is in order to, to bring them and to bring us closer to Hashem by catalyzing us into prayer through these challenges in our lives. Hashem loves hearing our prayers. They pierce through all the walls and all the barriers and all the divisions and, and present themselves before his, his great throne. That is, of course, if they are truly from our hearts. If we're just mumbling words, I don't think they pierce through all the barriers. I don't. And believe me, I mumble my share of words, but I do my best, I think. Maybe not. Maybe I don't do my best. But anyways, the other night I had this very powerful experience when I was putting Dvash to sleep, and she didn't want me to leave the room. And she had already, we'd finished all of the stories, often involving baby sheep, and Moshe Rabbeinu running after one of them and finding the burning bush but uh, she didn't want me to leave the room, so I stayed. And uh, I also stayed because I didn't want to leave either. I would miss her too. And, and, and fortunately, I pulled out my phone and recorded this exchange that I had with her that I just wanted to share with you. Yes. Yes, Tvash. Yes. Yes, Tvash. Yes. Yes, Tvash. Yes. Yes. It goes on. Were you guys able to hear that? Give me a thumbs up. So, because, you know, very often, uh, parents, I think we, we take things for granted. It, it happens to all of us, but for some reason, Hashem has blessed me, maybe because of my advanced age, when uh, Dvash was gifted to us and entrusted to us. But Hashem has blessed me that it happens to me a lot less than I would imagine otherwise that it would. Now, every time Dvash calls me Abba, just throughout the day for anything, every time she says Abba, my heart melts. My soul just dances. I, I don't even care what it's followed by. And for this recording, you can see it. I don't care if it's followed by anything at all. I could have stayed there all night. Yes, Tvash. Abba. Every time she says Abba, my heart is just so filled with love for her. And I really believe, I really believe it's the same with Hashem. That, that's perhaps why he gave us, uh, gave those of us at least who have been blessed with the experience, experience of being parents in the world. So we can possibly come close to scratching the service of fathoming his love for us. Hashem just wants us to call out with him, out to him with, with a, a simple, pure heart. We don't need to know all of the right liturgy. We don't need to know the right language. We don't need to know all the prayers. We just need to be able to call out to Hashem from the deepest place, which is not easy to do, at least not for me. I don't know why it seems like it should be, but it's not. Maybe it's the distractions of the world. Maybe it's the calluses 
around our hearts that are just the nature of existence in this lowest plane of reality. It's just not easy, at least it's not for me. And so, so maybe that's a, um, I was thinking this could be a suggested thing that we sort of do together, if you guys want. We could talk about it and we could share about it maybe next week. I'll, I'm in as well, I'll do it. At some point this week, let's go out into nature if possible, but it, it can be anywhere. Leave our phones behind if we can, right? Just disconnect, find a quiet place and just call out to Hashem. Let's just call out, just Abba, Abba. Just the word Abba with all of our hearts. We're not just saying it, but we're calling out Abba from our hearts. We don't even know what to say. We don't need to have anything to say, just Abba. And let's just see how that goes. It can be a, a whisper. It can be a yell. It can be at the top of your lungs. It can be at a conversational tone. None of that matters. Whatever we need to do to have it come from our hearts. You guys think that's a good idea? Yeah? Should we do it? Okay. But believe it or not, when I brought up this verse from the Daughters of Tzlachat, I wanted to make a totally different point altogether. So Rav Lichman actually brings this up in his Sefer about the land of Israel and the Parsha, Eretz Yisrael and the Parsha. He brings the verse, chapter 27, verse 1. The Daughters of Tzlachat, the Manashite family, son of Hefer, son of Gilad, son of Mechir, son of Manasha, we went through this already, of the families of Manasha, son of Yosef, drew near. Now in this verse... He brings the teaching from the famous sage Rashi, who analyzes why is it so important in this case to trace the lineage of these holy women all the way back, right? It's, it's strange. There's a lot of unnecessary, they, we don't usually go that far back, but it goes all the way back. And here's what Rashi says. Of the families of Manasseh, son of Yosef, why is it stated? Does it not already say son of Manasseh? It's to teach you that just as Yosef cherished the land, as it says, you shall bring up my bones. So too, his daughter, his daughters cherish the land. As it says, give us a portion. Remember, that was Joseph's one request to bring up his bones to the land of Israel. Showed how much he yearned for and loved the land of Israel. And so his daughters, generations later, said, give us a portion. So I brought this up because one of the greatest concerns I hear from parents, one of the most common prayer requests that I get, not only within this fellowship, but from without as well, is that, you know, we all want our children to love God, to love Israel, to follow in the ways of Hashem. And I think that these verses may shine a little bit of light on this. Because what does it say? It says that just as Joseph cherished the land, so did his descendants. So how did Joseph pass this on, this love that he had for Israel? How did he pass it on to, for so many generations? So I'm, number one, whatever I say, there's no guarantees of anything, of anything. Right, the most important thing we should do and we need to do is pray. That being said, however, in my mind, the equation is this. If we shower our children with love, if we make sure that our children feel how much we love them, then they'll love us. And not only will they love us, but most often they will love what we love. And by the way, we can never, ever, ever allow them to have the misimpression, God forbid, that our love for them is dependent on anything. Because it's my personal belief that a very deep spiritual desire that we all have is to be truly loved unconditionally, and the parents are really the only address in this world for that. And, and if our children feel that there's any condition on our love for them, then they will seek to violate that very condition subconsciously. They'll seek to violate that very condition 
to test our love and see really if there is a condition on it. And so that's my basic advice. Love your children with all your heart and love Hashem with all your heart and your children will see it. If it's true, they'll see it. And don't worry if it doesn't look now that it's having the desired effect. It's almost like zealotry, right? You can't engineer this type of thing. But we must always remember that we're just flesh and blood and we have, we're myopic, right? We have this sort of very limited vision of time and our love and our prayers may manifest in their lives after we leave the world or in ways that we can't even see or understand or perhaps not even during their lives. It may remain dormant within them and get activated into the life and hearts of their children or their children's children. We don't know. And perhaps it's not our business to know. We just need to sort of stay in our lane, right? Stay in our lane and have faith and don't stress. All we can do is, is do our best to shower love where it's needed most and leave the rest in the hands of Hashem. And so I wanted to show you a video. I know we're a little bit over time. If you have to leave, I totally understand. I want to show you a video from a very special group we had at the farm this past week. They were called Club Z, right? Z for Zionist. And they were a very special group. Yes, they were real Zionists, but not exactly what we call religious Zionists. They weren't very observant or religious at all, which is interesting. And it's sort of rare, at least in my experience. And on the group were the twin daughters of a very special woman who'd come out to the farm uh, before. And this woman was focused and in love with Israel. And she really went to great lengths to help us establish and strengthen another farm on the other side of the Arugot Valley. I mean, she really changed the story out here through the sheer force of her will. I can't go into the details now, but I wanted to share with you a recording of one of her daughters that was out at the farm with Club Z. And here's what she said at the end of her time at the farm. What was your experience at the Arugot farm? Uh, I have no words for it. It was amazing. Truly the highlight of my time here. I'm not just saying that because you're right in front of me. <laughs> Genuinely was the highlight of my time here. I want, if this is for my mom, I want Eli to have his bar mitzvah here and I want to get married at the hoopah. Um, yeah, it's just beyond words. It makes me very, very hopeful. Thank you. How was yeah. your time in Israel? How has it affected you? Yeah, um, I just, it reminds me how much I succumb to the diaspora and to like assimilation. Like every time I leave Israel, like right when I'm in Israel, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna come home. Like that's it. I'm moving to Israel, I'm making all the opportunities to become my life. And then after like two weeks, it starts to fade. Two months, I don't remember anymore. And then I come back to Israel and I'm like, the reason why I need to bank Aliyah is because I don't want to keep forgetting why I care so much and why I want to make Aliyah, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, when Jeremy, when your mom came here, there was a group. And so we had to decide who's with the group and who was with this woman, Maria and Eugene. So I was with the group and Jeremy went there and I always felt shortchanged. And now I feel like I got a great deal too, because I got to meet Maria's daughters and Jeremy wasn't here. So, but you guys really like the fierceness of the fire for Israel in your heart is, if only my children would have they such will. a thing. They will. But I think so also. But they're your children. I have no, but no the doubt. fact that you were able to be raised in the flesh pots of America and still be so on fire, that's a gift from God. However great a mother and parents you obviously clearly have, yeah. that's a gift. So my mom, it's she have to be she's a little crazy. It has to be like a little bit crazy no, I could, and yeah, I would to overcompensate to. for the like the simulation, I guess, or the yeah. whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful for her crazy mm -hmm. because and for your crazy too, sorry. I mean in the best way. Um, it's really remarkable. Well, hopefully you've inherited that exact craziness, and I think you have. Thank you. I take that as a big It's a blessing. I and I it's a, up yes. to it, and I, I put my, you know, take action. It's people like that that change the world. Absolutely. So, yeah. I agree more. And We're that will be her. 
Okay, I, I could have cut that off, but there's no point I cut it. I, I could have. I wanted you to hear even the banter at the end. Because I said, you know, it's from God. And she said, it's my mom. It's my mom. And, you know, this girl is from the liberal, left, progressive, anti-Israel bastion called California. Unless I'm mistaken, actually San Francisco. That's where she's from. This girl. And nonetheless, she's coming out like this. There's only one thing that can have that effect. And it's love. Which brings me to some last words that I want to share. Right? We spoke about the power of prayer. We spoke about how everything in the Torah really at the core is about love. And so while there are so many people in this fellowship who need our prayers and our love, and we are sending them to everybody, I just wanted to take this moment to pray for our beloved Esther, right? She's suffering right now. I understand she's getting a little bit better, but she really still needs our prayers in a real way. She's suffering a lot, and, and we beseech you, Hashem, Hashem, please look upon her with favorable, favorable and loving and compassionate eyes. Look on our beloved Esther Klug. Please send a full, complete healing to Esther Bat Hilda. Esther, the daughter of Hilda. Elna Refanala. Please heal her. Please, Hashem, heal her and the other beloved members of the fellowship who need healing and their families and their friends and all those who are just needing your divine healing in this broken world. Amen. And last but not least, right, let's join together to shower joy and blessings on the beautiful young Norwegian couple who Hashem brought together through this very fellowship. Are you guys there? Tabitha, is there any way you could bring them up? I, I guess you can't. It's hard to do that last second. But, um, ah, okay, well, oh, that's not them. It's a picture of them, but that's okay. That's okay. Anyways, this is them sharing, you know, what, uh, what they've been through. She wrote, uh, Shalom Ari, I have some great news to share with you all, because of your fellowship, I got engaged today. My wonderful husband-to-be is the son of Tone Tone in the fellowship, who is also from Norway. But we live on different parts of the country, and we hadn't met before. And his name is Kenneth Johansson. Your fellowship is really making great connections. How beautiful is that? So Hashem, please shower your light and your love and your blessing on Anita and Kenneth. Allow them to establish a home filled with love for you awe for your great name, and study of your Torah. May their home be filled with laughter and sweet prayers of little children who they lovingly are going to raise to walk in your ways. Amen. May we see more of those blessings come from this holy fellowship. And uh, speaking of blessings, it's my joy to bless all of you with the blessing of Aaron, the high priest. Adonai v'yishmerecha, ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichuneka, yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yisem lecha shalom. May Hashem bless and protect you. May Hashem make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Hashem lift up His countenance to you and give you peace. Shalom, my friends. Shalom, everybody in Silt, Colorado. Good to see all of you. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.